I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening and welcome to the London Review Bookshop I can see how eager you are all and how happy you are to see Lynn and see Amelia here tonight. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, so for our evening event tonight, we have Lynn Siegel, who will be in conversation with Amelia Horgan. Uh, Lynn's new book is Lean on Me, published by Verso. Uh, she'll be discussing her work with Amelia, whose book by Pluto Press uh, is Lost in Work. Lynn Siegel is um, an uh, is it a professor of psychology and gender studies at the mm -hmm. University of Birkbeck? Please welcome Lynn and Amelia. Good evening, everyone. It's, it's such an honor to be here um, and to celebrate the launch of Lynn's Lean on Me, um, which are kind of um, reflections on, on care as a political, radical political concept, um, a kind of survey of, of the global left and, and um, a record of a life, a political life lived through and with kind of seeped in care. Um, it's a really, really beautiful book and I'm really excited to be talking about it today. Um, I guess before we move into the book itself, it, it makes sense for us to, to think about um, how that kind of political entanglement, that political interdependence is lived through um, a very particular moment in terms of um, the kind of the scenes we're seeing in, in Gaza and, and, and across Palestine and, and what, what that kind of call to care looks like for us. And I suppose broadly the, the scenes we're seeing are so devastating, but we can still see care amongst the horror, whether that's um, the kind of the work of um, doctors going... In, in hospitals without electricity, without water, but also as people kind of across the world are uh, called into action by care, I suppose. And I wonder if you could reflect on the present situation as it relates to your um, political engagement with, with Palestine, but also as it relates to, to care as, as you see it. Right. I think it's very hard to think about Gaza and care same time. I mean, it is so completely devastating what's happened since the massacre by Hamas uh, on October the 7th and the um, kidnapping of hundreds of Israelis. Um, but since then, what we've seen 
clearly seems to me a type of genocide. I mean, it is so um, relentless, the killing that is now going on, supposedly in the name of self-defense, but clearly not self-defense. And um, I think the worst thing about it, several things are so bad about it for me, our Western leaders' um, complicity in it, um, their lack of care mm. for the devastation that's now um, befallen Gaza. I mean, most people who live there, 70% of them were not born when Hamas was elected with strange compliance from Netanyahu, as we know. And um, so I, I simply don't know mm. how people cannot respond to that devastation. But the worst thing for someone like me, um, a Jewish person involved in peace and care is that we have worked, like many people out there today, Richard and Mika and others, we've worked for over two decades for peace in Israel-Palestine. And there have been periods when it at least seemed a little more hopeful. So on the Palestinian side, you had people like uh, Raza Shahidi in his very many books trying to talk about what it was to be a dispossessed Palestinian, but talking to Jewish Israelis, trying to make links there and still having some belief in possible peace. And then my friend from Gaza, Iyad Siraj, if only he were alive today, although if he were alive today, he would already be dead. But um, he worked so hard, you know, with Israeli Jews and Palestinians to promote nonviolence, to promote peace. And so what is so devastating for us is how difficult that looks now. I mean, we, we can't give up. We can't say it's impossible. And there are some very small groups of people, um, Israeli Jews and Palestinians, still trying to work together, calling for an end to, um, calling for a ceasefire and um, obviously an end to the occupation. Mm -hmm. I mean, we will not ever get peace mm -hmm. in Israel-Palestine before there's an end to the occupation. Of course, we call for a two-state solution. I, I very much doubt that's possible because of the um, settlement encroachment into Palest further into Palestinian territory. But whatever happens, there has to be an end to the occupation. And, and we have such a responsibility in the West for calling for that. But, you know, my Labour leaders, I'm still somehow in the Labour Party, won't even support a ceasefire. So, you know, we're so far from people caring about what's happening there. And it's just terrifying to me that this could be our situation now. And we've just heard that um, Keir Starmer has just said today that if people, if MPs vote for the ceasefire at the amended um, vote tomorrow, they, they'll be expelled from the, the shadow cabinet. Yeah. Yes. He's already expelled people. Yeah. Mm. So the situation seems... I, yeah, I, I suppose here we have this this need to act, but this complete absence of care. Um, but on the side of ordinary people in Britain, at least, there's some movement of, or feeling that, that compels people to act, to see that. Yes, I do think on the ground 
globally. Mm. A lot of people are more than horrified and so desperate um, to see an end to the violence and to the slaughter. Um, so that, mm. I guess that's a small reason for hope. If only we mm. could uh, have more impact. It's mm. very hard for us to have more impact, isn't it? But we will keep trying. Yeah. I suppose there's a, there's a related thought, which is what... Um, we might then move on to talk about the nature of care, what it is, and, and how you lay that out in the book. But I wonder, reflecting on that, the fact that we have so much we have popular support for something, the government doesn't act. Um, what is it that makes, whether it's governments or particular people, not care? What, what are the barriers to, to care? What right. blocks it? Right. Ah, I thought I might say something about how I see care first we can and then the barriers Let's to care. Yes, because um, in my book, as in the care manifesto that we published before and all um, my fellow care manifesto people are here. There are five of us who produced the care manifesto in 2020. We all use this very expanded notion of care, which it's not just hands-on care, but it's also, you know, as many feminist care theorists have said, in particular Joan Tronto and others, it's um, caring for and caring about each other in the world. You know, we define it as everything that allows life and the world itself to flourish. That's how we see care. So, you know, once, once you start from that, <laughs> you have everything to do and everyone to convince that um, actually in the end, because in my book I move from, you know, the beginnings of the blueprint of care with motherhood through to thinking about work, education, and, and then in particular the lives of those labelled vulnerable and so on to care for the world. If you're going to start there, then of course you have to say, why have we got such a calamity of carelessness in the world today. And we read about it every single day in our papers. We read about those dying, you know, those who first died and died in huge numbers from COVID were, of course, the disabled, the elderly who in their care homes were not even protected for the first few months. Their deaths weren't even recorded and so on. So, so why is there such a calamity of care? Well, there's very many reasons for it. I mean, partly care has never been valued. It's never been valued under capitalism, really, let alone under our most predatory form of neoliberal capitalism, because, you know, what we're interested in, those who have power, is uh, what's going to keep the market uh, <laughs> cycling around faster and profits rising to the very few at the top uh, <clears throat> even faster. And it draws on a whole history of um, devaluation of care because care was something that women supposedly did, that women supposedly did for nothing in the home. And um, the fact that most women today are out working the same long hours as men at work and that work is even less compatible with the home despite what feminists fought so hard for 40, 50 years ago to make work more compatible with home it's actually the opposite. And we've also had, you know, in the latest um, <clears throat> instantiations of capitalism, an even greater rhetoric of contempt for 
dependency, contempt for vulnerability. And so, of course, where I begin and where we all should begin and where feminists have always begun, but never more so than recently, if you think of the writing of Judith Butler and others, or probably any of us here who ever write anything, you know, we have to begin from the understanding that we're all intrinsically vulnerable. We're all interdependent. And even those who are seen as, um, you know, the hardworking, um, autonomous creatures who can go off to produce profits uh, every day, they too are dependent, you know, on all the infrastructures which tend to work better for them. You know, the buses which will get you to work will uh, come more often than that, the ones that will get you to your hospital or, or um, to the library or, or, or to any sort of public space. So, so we're all interdependent, we're all vulnerable. That's, that's the message that we know we have to begin from and it's exactly the opposite mm -hmm. to the message which um, has been there, you know, particularly since Thatcher, particularly with the idea that so the only point of our lives you know, was to go to work to make profits, whereas in fact the only point of our lives is to care for each other. You know, when we die, what are we going to think? We're going to be pleased, you know, to know that we have at least helped some people. We hope to think about those people who have helped us to think of our place in our communities in the world. It's exactly the opposite. You know, it's the, it's the opposite to the message that people today are raised with. Mm. Yeah, it completely runs against that grain, right? And I suppose there's a there's a way of the, the way in which it's used and the way in which it's used in the book is is, is in a very different way to the kind of um, one directional. Care that we might think that, that is sometimes invoked or comes across something like charity, right? It's a there's there's an implication in each other's lives rather than a sort of doling out of something, right? And that that seems very very important that it comes with a set of um, transformative relations that that, right. that extend beyond the act of giving care itself. Yes. Right? Well, I think what we have to see is that um, care is always a relationship, mm. you know, and not only do um, we all need care, actually, from cradle to grave. But some people's needs are being uh, <coughs> catered for much better than others. Mm. Um, but we need to care. Mm. I mean, to, to, to have a sense of our place in our communities, of, of the groups we belong to, of, of having, you know, having ties to the world and to other people. We need to have a sense of being relevant to their lives, you know, of them needing us, of feeling needed. And that's why, you know, I think particularly a lot of, I was going to say older people, but I think increasingly so many people were always reading about loneliness, isolation. And so these are obviously people who just go to their jobs into some labour that they don't know the point of, come home and prepare for their next day back in their jobs. They're, to give meaning to our lives, to give meaning for it to our lives, it seems to me, is to have a sense of our relation to others and our significance to others. Mm. And, and then to always see that caring relationship which we have with others as a two-way process. And it really is. I mean, even when we might be caring for extremely fragile and dependent people, when you talk to the underpaid carers as uh, the other crisis of care is what's happened to care with the 
outsourcing and privatization of care, which our governments have insisted upon and, you know, financed companies buying up care homes and so on. And so there being no adequate way for most people to have the time or resources to do the care they want to do, even when caring is their job. But nevertheless, you'll still often find that if you interview those carers, they'll say, well, what's important to me is, is the job I do. Mm. You know, they do know that it has some meaning. And also, they are extremely dis distressed and upset if they haven't got the time to be there with the person who they know needs them. And they're then even more distressed if that person doesn't survive, often because of the lack of care they're getting. So, you know, knowing that you're doing something meaning meaningful is what uh, carers know. Now, interestingly, more and more of us are going to be doing caring jobs because as, uh, you know, as we've got rid of um, industry in most Western countries and, and um, there's only finance, capital and care, really. So more and more people, 50% of our jobs are caring jobs. And that's, of course, where finance capital is making its profits now, you know, from exploiting people doing caring jobs. And I've completely lost the thread of what I was talking about. <laughs> but um, how hard it was to actually be able to do the work you want to be doing, the work of care, because you're just not given the time to do it adequately. And the kind of moral harm of being on the front line, effectively, of relationally living those cuts as well, right? and what, and what that feels like. I wonder if you could talk a bit about the kind of possibilities that our current society gives us, because I, I think I really agree with you that people really want to care. I think mm. we saw this at the beginning of the pandemic when all of these activities sprung up. People really mm. wanted to be helping mm. each other. But then quite mm. quickly, that was replaced by, I suppose, ideologically the feeling that the market should be doing this and that there was something that we shouldn't mm. be doing. It was improper somehow mm. For, mm. for us to be looking after each other. Mm. All kind of, mm. um, um, you know, patchwork of it, the kind of limited provisions that were given by government and so on. Mm. So I wonder, I wonder what kind of possibilities in our current society there are to live these caring relations. Um, you've, you've spoken about some of them already, but um, what, and I suppose, what the kind of barriers are to, to mm. living those more fully. Mm. Um, mm. And, and perhaps it would be particularly interesting to think about them in relation to motherhood because that's where the book starts, but you can talk about any aspect you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the book I do begin uh, talking about motherhood because um, when feminists, many of us here, uh, came into our adult political lives, we, um, we entered them as feminists and often indeed as mothers and, uh, or would-be mothers. And, um, but what we were aware of and what we were re rebelling against was the unhappy lives often of our own mothers, whether they were taking Valium or whether they were having nervous breakdowns, as indeed many of them really were in the 1950s. Um, uh, what we came across, people like Anne Oakley, who began researching motherhood, found enormous levels of depression, stress, isolation, marginalization that she was reporting um, within households, which she herself experienced when she became a mother. And so one of the key thrusts of women's liberation in the 1970s, um, which I wrote something about in The Guardian on Saturday, but one of the key thrusts was to um, transform our 
home lives, make them more compatible with our working lives, demand shorter working hours, look what we got, longer working hours, and also um, uh, demand more resources for caring. And, and, and also say that men as well as women should obviously be parenting together, but friends as well, you know, we should all be prioritizing the work of care. That's what we said then. That's what I think now. I think probably many of us here think now. But what happened? Well, the pretense was that all women's liberation really wanted was um, to pursue their individual aspirations. I don't know actually any feminist who was wanting that at the time, even though some of us were hoiked uh, upstairs in our jobs and so on. But um, <clears throat> uh, what? Well, for a little while, we did have some successes. There was more money for nurseries. We got um, more say on maternity wards and, um, you know, doctors, male doctors who had been extremely sexist and dismissive, particularly of pregnant women, uh, as well as older women or maybe any women, um, you know, were forced really to listen to women more. Um, but then, you know, by the time you get all change under Thatcher with uh, welfare beginning to uh, be rolled back, and of course rolled back even more dramatically and viciously after 2010 by David Cameron, um, <laughs> then uh, you know, the effects on domestic life were really unbelievably destructive. And so, you know, from, from our lives when I was a mother, many of us here were mothers, we really did manage to be able to enjoy mothering much more through, you know, working in our, or relating to our community nurseries and just being able to talk about our lives. Today, those writing about motherhood, whether it's Jacqueline Rose or Eliana Glazer and others, talk about total despair from so many mothers who feel even more isolated, even more overworked. If they're in jobs, you know, they have to employ other people to do their caring work. If, if they decide, if they're wealthy enough and their husbands will, or partners will support them and they become full-time mothers once more, they report exactly the same sense of marginalization and isolation, but actually even more worries about trying to raise these perfect children in today's world. And the statistics all bear it out. I mean, 50% of women after giving birth are suffering from depression. That's higher than it used to be. 50% um, are, <coughs> are uh, having some form of mental breakdown and the commonest cause of death for young mothers is suicide. How can we be in a situation like that 50 years after feminism? So, you know, <laughs> A lot of things have gone wrong, which is everything to do with that. Rolling back of welfare, rolling back of resources, and the pretense that all we want to be is out there in the workforce, um, doing often fairly useless jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Unless we're doing caring jobs and immensely underpaid. But there's more to say about those caring jobs, actually, because most women have to be out in the workforce just to keep a roof over their heads and and their children's or, 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 or uh, dependents' heads, then what's happened is that we get the outsourcing of care mm. and you get now 
not just the feminization of care, but the racialization of care. And so those um, care companies and care employers are employing migrant women, um, <clears throat> often non-white women, you know, the lowest possible wages. And so that continues to devalue the whole notion of care, not just feminized now, but absolutely racialized. And uh, that's another huge problem. Mm. I don't know if I answered the question. I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did. I think some of the, some of the questions, sorry, we've got a sense of what care is. I guess I have, I have one question that comes directly from that, which is, how is it that we, I suppose, we as socialist feminists came, how, how did we lose? What happened? And yeah. <laughs> why, yeah. why has the situation become so dire? I guess some yeah. of it is just the left lost, the, the mm. right won, there's yeah. this big backlash. But yeah. the story you've told there, that the history is, mm. um, well, it's, it's mm. ends very badly mm. <laughs> in a way. Mm. Um, the situation seems worse. And I think one thing that mm. um, your article in The Guardian made me think about is the kind of possibilities for experiments in communal living mm. are so mm. reduced now. Mm. And, and one thing that to me seems very important about feminism and feminism as a kind of lived life is that there's a lot you can do obviously you can't you can't change the background structuring features of society but if you want to try and live in a more egalitarian way in, at home or with your friends or in the groups you're part of there are things you can do but it seems like the way um the kind of material base of society has changed makes that much harder the kind of communal life a collective life the possibilities that seem so reduced so that's, uh, I guess the question there is, how did it end up so badly? <laughs> well, I'm glad to see that my friend Sue Himmelweig just arrived because I was actually about to say <laughs> everything is always a little more complex mm -hmm. than simply success and failure. Mm -hmm. So as I said, we had many significant victories to begin with, but uh, with welfare cutbacks and, and um, the nature of the workforce um, requiring longer hours and the whole competitive individualistic uh, nature of society overall, then things got so much tougher to practice the dreams we've had. Mm. But nevertheless, many feminists went into all sorts of different groups such as the Women's Budget Group, which uh, Sue Himmelweit's connected with over there, or of course there's Child Poverty Action. There's many other sorts of NGOs and resource centres that have kept arguing for exactly what we need, which is a shorter paid working week, shorter working hours, which is universal basic services. Those demands have actually got clearer in their formulation and we are still making them, but uh, we're an incredibly long way from achieving them, particularly while we still have this Tory government, this cruel and brutal Tory government, which we have, and we certainly have a lot of work to do, those of us who can manage to stay in the Labour Party, if we are, to um, get the Labour Party to genuinely prioritise care rather than growth, 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 which is the only thing we ever hear them talk about, even though, you know, those of us who care for the world as well as wanting to care for each other know that growth is not the answer to anything. And anyway, you should never talk about growth unless you're talking about green growth and sustainable growth, which is not what we hear from uh, any of our political leaders. 
at the moment. And so, what's, did you ask for resources for hope? Yeah, resources for hope. <laughs> but I gave a few that, you know, we haven't disappeared and many of us are still engaged in trying to do significant things, in, you know, including in our workplaces. Another thing that ha happened, which we haven't had time to touch on, is how much works our working lives got, and mm -hmm. particularly for people like me and no doubt many people here in education, you know, we had this amazing success early on in the 70s and 80s in, you know, expanding the um, nature of what we could teach in, in the expansion of the humanities and the social sciences, you know, all trying to help everyone understand their place in the world, the need, you know, to relate to others in the world and know um, uh, uh, what was the situation nationally, globally and so on. And that's exactly what's been attacked with the attack on the humanities. The attack on the social sciences is precisely, this is not important, you know, education for its own sake, knowledge about the world is not important. Mm. Now, anyone concerned with care knows that Education is crucial. Mm -hmm. It's crucial in us learning the skills and having the understanding to appreciate difference, you know, to appreciate conflict and to know something about class, ethnic, racial conflict and how we can engage in struggles to uh, shift, you know, the worst degradations of power in those areas. So that is crucial and that struggle obviously goes on it goes on, you know, within the uh, education unions at the moment. Of course, partly they're just trying to survive and keep their jobs, but they also do raise broader issues. And other things that, you know, COVID was a very interesting time, wasn't it? Because COVID was a time in which we all had to care more yeah. for ourselves and care more for each other. We had to care more for each other, like wearing masks and so on, so as not to kill each other. Yeah. Well, you know... We also saw then the rise of um, uh, mutual aid groups. Of course, we've seen the rise of food banks for ages. And so that, that sense that we have to care more for each other has not disappeared. It's got harder for more people to engage in. People my age can do it a little more because we're not flat out in our jobs. So we can still go down to our food banks or to other uh, resources locally that try and um, keep alive community. Because care isn't just a care that happens in the family, it's also keeping public spaces, keeping our communities alive. People are involved in that. But then it's never enough without fighting for improved infrastructures. Mm -hmm. Those infrastructures, you know, which are let so many people go by the wayside. I say a lot about disability struggles in Lean On Me because disability struggles have been, disability activists have been crucial in um, <clears throat> unpacking the connection between dependence, vulnerability and autonomy, you know, saying that societies precisely have not catered for their needs. It's instead of um, seeing disabled people as intrinsically vulnerable and therefore they can be shunted off to um, uh, uh, disabled homes and so on, as they used to be, they want to be a part of society. But to be a part of society, yeah. you know, we have to have the infrastructures that enable them to be. And again, there was a lot of success in that, particularly in the 80s and even early 90s. People like Jenny Morris and other disability activists, you know, were all saying, 
We're disabled by society as much as by our physical incapacities. And, um, and she had some success in fighting for that. But what happens as soon as crunches come and welfare is being withdrawn, then the first, the first people affected are, of course, the disabled and the older people and all those who are slightly more vulnerable when they don't have to be affected. They don't have to be affected, but it's the lack of resources and the lack of concern for such people that leads to the really cruel situation we're in now. But you asked for hope, didn't you? <laughs> the hope is us and everybody here <laughs> that not only we try to care for each other more and care for each other better, show kindness and uh, <clears throat> compassion whenever we can, but also fight for those universal basic services and insist, you know, that there is no reason why we haven't got them. Mm. You know, we are still no doubt dropping down the league because of our idiot governments, but, you know, we're the fifth, sixth, or maybe now seventh uh, richest country in the world. And of course we can provide basic infrastructures and, and good lives mm. for all. It's just that we've chosen not to, and instead we've chosen the route of peak inequality. You know, the sort of thing Danny Dowling writes about, you know, we've chosen to simply allow a situation where only the rich are getting richer and anyone in need at all is getting poorer. Mm. So, got to turn that around. Mm. I guess we're all trying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is, is maintaining that hope an act of care in itself? Does it require similar resources? Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm often wheeled out, actually, as uh, someone to sell resources for hope. <laughs> Particularly since I wrote my book, Radical Happiness. <laughs> Moments of collective joy. And there I tried to sell the line, mm -hmm. which has something in it, mm. that when we come together to try and make better lives for each other and the world near and far, mm. going all the way to Gaza, then... Um, you know, we do have moments of collective joy. We certainly have moments of greater solidarity. Mm. We certainly have a sense of greater purpose in life. And, um, you know, so that does ground both our own sense of identity and engagement in the world, as well as hopefully mm. trying to push for better times or at least keep the vision, mm. some vision of better times there. And I think we saw the importance of that sort of residual infrastructure in a way. I don't know how you feel. I feel since 2019, bits of the left are very scattered and they're all, there's lots of really important stuff going on, but people aren't necessarily together. But then as soon as things began in, in, the, in the past month or so, you can see the way that those kind of deposits from previous mobilizations are there. And you yes. can see them becoming reactivated. So even yes. when, even in these moments where there's not very much going on, there's still these connections. There's still this kind of history of care that can be brought back when, when it needs to be. Yes, I think that's so. I think it was basic to feminism, but now yeah. way beyond feminism, you yeah. know, My Little Care Collective, as I say here, we all say, you know, we're committed to arguing for universal care and to putting care at the very heart of politics. That is what politics should be about. And, um, you know, I think we're not the only people saying that. I think a lot more people are saying and thinking that, but mainly... Also, you say that because you begin by thinking about our universal 
vulnerability and dependence mm. on each other, which you'd think, for heaven's sake, COVID would have taught us, mm. but people don't learn lessons for very long. Those who don't want to and want to get its back as fast mm. as possible, building profits for one or two people. Um, that that's you know that's where we begin, mm. and uh, we're going to have to keep doing it. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Before we move to questions from the audience, I wanted to ask you to um, reflect on um, the kind of your role or the, the history of socialist feminism in Britain. Because one thing that I think I find interesting is that that, that history, despite its, its strong kind of um, presence in the history of, of British feminism, isn't really spoken about by people my age. It's sort of like, it's quite odd. It's as if that didn't really happen. And people will say, oh, feminism was like this, right? But it's actually not, doesn't really track the history of what it, what it was. So I suppose I wanted to invite you to reflect on, um, in the way that you do in the book, because it's also partly a, a memoir interwoven in, on, yeah. on, um, on socialist feminism and what that means and what we can take from that, if anything, in relation to care. Um, it's yes. a big question, I'm sorry. Yes, that's <laughs> all right. Well, I, I always try, and indeed I'm always told, to uh, write my books with a lot of um, bringing myself in because people love reading memoir. People want to know what you're doing, what you're up to, and it all makes the material uh, easier to digest, it seems. So I do always try to do that. So in, I have a chapter on whatever happened to socialist feminism. But one thing that happened to f socialist feminism was the defeat of the left. Mm. I mean, we were feminists, you know, we were committed to um, empowering women and getting women to empower each other, absolutely. But we also understood completely, or we perhaps got to understand it more and more as the years went by, the significance of class, the significance of ethnicity and racialization in meaning that some women would always be infinitely more privileged um, than other women. And that was exactly at odds, you know, with the political move at the moment, which was to pretend that all feminists had ever wanted was their individual success. So that individ you know, heightened individualization of, of um, and competitiveness that was promoted under, you know, the rationale of neoliberal thinking was so at odds with socialist feminism where you never began simply from yourself and your own aspirations. It was always looking out, you know, to think of other divisions and other things holding um, women and indeed others back um, that we just get increasingly marginalised. And I suppose one way of telling it, but it oversimplifies it, is the growth of identity politics mm -hmm. and that um, everybody, if they're not just out for themselves, 
then they're out for their particular group, you know. So they're out for themselves as women, as black people, as, you know. And actually that is never how liberation struggles begin. Mm -hmm. Liberation struggles are never simply concerned, usually, um, with themselves, which is why uh, Black Lives Matter is particularly concerned with what's happening in Gaza, for instance. You relate to other oppressed people. And I think that the, the problem for socialist feminism was that it's total lack of fit with the ideological thrust mm. that suggested that all women wanted was their own individual success, yeah. which I'd say was almost the last thing that Many of us put first. <laughs> yeah, if you can get round that. <laughs> Back in the 1970s. I guess we can still see some, some kind of echoes of that um, solidaristic, um, not kind of making a... Uh, seeing but not making kind of fetish of difference in the in the in the slogan in our thousands and our millions we're all Palestinians uh, yes, right there's right. still a kind mm. of it's not a claim mm. to mm. Um, it's not saying I can't ever understand particularly your Jews yeah mm -hmm. yeah but in this in this but in this claim there's something there's something mm. of that echo there right mm. Um, mm. yeah so mm. maybe it's not yes. all lost again. oh no all is never lost all is never all lost. is never lost yes hope <laughs> and uh, uh, we have to uh, aspire for hope, even in rather hopeless times, mm -hmm. as Brecht says, mm -hmm. in bad times. We talk about those bad times and mm. uh, hope for better. Yes, yes. And <laughs> there, will there be questions and answers about the bad times in the bad times? <laughs> I guess <laughs> there, there can be now. So on that hopeful note, um, <laughs> I guess, should we take them in yeah. twos or threes? Is that yes, useful so yes. we can get a sense of them? Great. Uh, thank you so much, Lynn. Thanks. Um, I, I'm really curious. So you start the book with talking about mothers, and I almost want to take it in the opposite direction. <laughs> um, you know, there, there seems to be um, a rise of those of us opting out of uh, reproduction, opting out of parenthood. And I wonder, it, you know, from your perspective, how does that square with the crisis of care? And might this be actually a strategy um, toward care? Hi, uh, thank you for the talk. So I was interested in um, what gets in the way of care. Um, and you've talked a little bit about uh, structural constraints, like resources and time. But I was wondering if, like, from the perspective of the individual, what might cause someone not to recognize the need for care? or maybe turn away from someone who they do recognise needs care. Needs Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks very much, Lynn. Uh, it's prompted me to kind of try and put something together that's been troubling me in the last while, which is what Israel hopes to get out of the destruction of Gaza. And it seems to me you can look at it as an extreme example of the politics of anti-care, it is a politics of starvation and dehydration, which is leading to people attacking each other in food queues for what limited resources are available. It is absolutely encouraging the disintegration of any possible relations of care. And just thinking beyond that, maybe one should start thinking of neoliberalism and austerity as a deliberate politics of anti-care and the destruction of human relationships. It's not just an accidental byproduct. People must know that this is going to be the result of the politics that they 
impose on us. I'd love your reflections on that. Okay. All right. We're, we're I wasn't sure if you were going to see, <laughs> I'll get another question. Okay. Um, I began talking about motherhood, Zina, but uh, not to promote motherhood, actually. <laughs> I was just saying that's where many of us began as feminists in thinking about care and the difficulties we had um, in being able to provide the sort of care we might like to care or just feeling put upon as mothers. Um, I know more women are today choosing not to be mothers for many different reasons, I thought. Some because they don't want to and why should they? Um, and there's all sorts of other things to care about in the world, such as caring for the world itself. You know, you don't have to be giving birth and caring for children at all. So I'm in no way promoting motherhood and I don't, uh, although I'm not going to promote the opposite either. I want people to, uh, you know, it seems to me, we used to uh, have a problem with our um, women's right to choose, the abortion campaigns in which people think, well, all feminists want is abortions. <laughs> and so we, the national abortion campaign, NAC, got changed to women's right to choose, you know, whether they want to have children or whether they don't and what, you know, what else they might want to do. So that would be my position, people's right to choose and to choose collectively as well, not just individually, but to be able to relate why they're making their choices and the significance of those choices, you know, as some people have, haven't they? Sheila Hetty and others, I believe. So that would be my answer to you. Um, what gets in the way of care? I'll tell you one thing that gets in the way of care. Masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> because the thing about masculinity, if you go back to Locke or anyone, Kant, the autonomous manhood, autonomous manhood, is really not someone who has time to care. You know, the autonomous man is busy making his fortune and don't let anyone interfere with that. And so, you know, gender politics are crucial to promoting care and saying, as Joan Tronto talks about this as well, there should be no exemptions from care. You know, we all need to care for each other. We all should be involved in caring for each other. But, you know, traditionally we had servants who care, or the poor, as David Graeber right? you know, the poor have to care too much. Mm -hmm. But then he goes on to sort of really value caring and saying caring is what life is about. But, but why that's not seen, I do think this idea of the autonomous person who now no longer is simply a man because women as well are brought up with this ideology of success and aspiration being, individual success and aspiration being all that's important. That's what gets in the way of it, that notion that, you know, we can be completely autonomous and self-seeking which isn't true, but that uh, mythology gets in the way. Now, Richard's complex question, ah, yes. Yeah, well, destruction of care or possibilities for care. Anti-care. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do think that, yeah, that has been a feature of our time and that it is a feature of neoliberal rationality. That, I mean, again, as in reply to the last question, insofar as we're all just self-seeking individuals, then we supposedly have no need for care. You know, I don't need care, so why should I care for anyone else? In fact, of course, we 
totally depend on our infrastructures as transport, on our infrastructures of health, our infrastructures of everything. I had to go to Scotland last weekend and it was such a nightmare journey because we were held up for four hours just outside Newcastle. And anyone I told this to said, yeah, that's what happened to me. Why did it happen? Because we don't repair our rail service. And um, so I do think that um, there is a deliberate undermining of, of care and our need for care and our need to engage in care. How to link that up with Gaza? I don't know. Are you saying in Gaza? I, I, I have no idea. I can't imagine how people are surviving or not. Do you mean in Gaza or do you mean in Israel? Well, I mean, they're destroying hospitals there. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, that level of um, nihilism, I can't, I just can't imagine. <laughs> I mean, when you've got a, a total destruction of life of men, women and children, I, I, I don't, clearly there's such a contempt for care, and you may well be right, I, I don't know so much about that. Thank you, Lynn. Um, I was thinking that uh, you began your talk by reference, and I thought very appropriately, by reference to motherhood. And it seems to me that one of the projects of neoliberalism was precisely to denigrate motherhood. If you remember you know, how much excitement there was and support for the idea of the nanny state, mm. the transformation of the function of motherhood mm. into this denigrated object called mm. the nanny. Mm. And it seems to me that one of the consequences of that state of mind, that ideological position, is precisely what we're facing now, namely the industrialization of care. I think of, you know, the young doctors, teachers who enter the professions of care with such aspirations, idealism, if you like, mm. and are turned into industrialized objects where care really doesn't. I mean, the idea of relationships being the primary focus mm. of their activity is... Mm. Mm. now been replaced by an anxiety about what happens if we get something wrong. And mm. the nature of caring relationships is that you do sometimes. Oh, thank you, Lynn, as ever. Um, I'm just thinking about some of the questions we've just had, excuse me, which seemed very appropriate and Julian's point just now. I'm wondering whether you could say something about um, the hatred of care that comes from our inability to face our own vulnerability. Mm. I mean, I, I might even be able to make the link with what, with what Richard was saying there, that maybe one of the things that we've seen um, in Israel and Gaza is you know, how appalled the Israelis were by the revelation of their own vulnerability and their incapacity to face that, which then results in this kind of huge outburst of you know, merciless destructiveness um, inflicted on other people who then become you know, vulnerable but are not recognised as such. So my point is basically, how much do you think what's going on here in the revulsion towards care is actually uh, an inability to face the vulnerability that caring for others brings up in ourselves? Thank, thank you, Lynn. And uh, sorry to add to the chorus of men asking questions. 
Um, Stand up. <laughs> can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Um, um, I wanted to ask about. I think when care might be weaponized by people that are in power that we disagree with. So, uh, what what I have in mind is in, for example, in struggles in the workplace when you know the boss might say, "Don't go on strike because we're all in this together." Mm, or mm. for those of us who work in education, you know, we hear it all the mm. time, I, "I couldn't possibly." go on strike because I care too much about my students. I'm sure this applies to people working in, in caring professions as well. So, so how do we address the way that care is kind of misused and, and, and can we address that through the language of care or does that need some other kind of response? Um, yes, the industrialization of care, which is absolutely about the commodification of care too. I mean, I've been saying more and more of us will be doing caring jobs but that will be because that's where the profits are coming from now. Finance capital is actually investing, you know, in care homes and children's homes and so on, and uh, hoping that that's one way of uh, building up um, their profits. Um, and it does link with what Stephen said. And I actually, when I started this book, which was before the Care Manifesto, it was about five years ago, back in 2017, because I like to go from book to book. <laughs> so uh, after I started it, thinking about it then, and then I wanted to call it um, Disavowals of Dependency. Mm. Well, first I was not going to have that. <laughs> <laughs> Much too negative a, a notion, Disavowals of Dependency. <laughs> then I wanted to call my first chapter that. I can't remember if I did or not. But I think you're <laughs> absolutely right that... Um, you know, people are frightened of dependency. You know, where there's such a um, contempt for the idea of dependency and the idea, it's a bit like growth, 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 you know, maturity is becoming ever more autonomous and independent. And of course, what we would like is that maturity is actually being able to recognize our ties to others and how much we need others and, and others need us. That's the line I'm trying to sell that I hope we're all going to be trying to sell. But, um, but certainly the struggle for dependency does feel key. It's interesting. I talked about the disability struggles and the disability struggles were to insist that we're disabled by society and, um, and that... Um, if society catered for our needs, then we wouldn't be dependent. And there are some people, like the psychoanalyst Tim Dartington, you may know, who's written on uh, vulnerability, saying that the problem with that, and even the problem with um, independent living allowance and so on, and everything, of course, started to go wrong with that demand as soon as cuts came along, was that it didn't... It, went, it seemed to go along with the devaluation of dependency and didn't stress the importance of relationships and care and our need to care and our need for each other. So I think there is, I don't know, <laughs> I don't think Freud thought it was absolutely basic that he disavows of dependency, but, but certainly it, it, we do pick that up that somehow uh, maturing is about becoming more autonomous rather than about developing our ties to others as as I would like to see. Um, and by the way, I just wanted to return to something Richard said. What about all those doctors that have 
stayed to the bitter end, i.e. their deaths in hospitals. So it's not only a story of fighting for food, is it? I mean, some people clearly have given their lives to help others. But I don't know how to say too much about that. Now, care being weaponized, Jordan, of, of course, they'll weaponize anything, won't they? <laughs> <laughs> to keep you at work. <laughs> um, and I think that um, those carers who have been striking, as many people have been, beginning with you know, grassroots care workers and cleaners who often belong to universal carers of the world, you know, they will say, we can't do our jobs. We can't do our caring jobs unless our conditions are better. And that's obviously exactly what nurses have said. And that's exactly what academics should also be saying. We can't do our jobs while you keep on cutting back the, new, the humanities and you keep on saying that uh, education for its own sake isn't important and you keep on pretending that we can marketise universities and marketise everything, when what we want to do is exactly the opposite. We want markets out of care. That's what we want. The solution to our care crisis is by and large to get markets out of care, certainly to get finance capital out of care, to get greater community control of um, uh, paid care, as well as, as all to have time and resources to care. So I think you just say to them, Jordan, that's rubbish. Um, we're actually trying to, uh, we're fighting for uh, the possibility for more caring education. So don't give us that crap. <laughs> Thank you sure. very much for that wonderful talk. Um, I was thinking about care in relation to solidarity. Clearly, it's very important for solidarity building. Um, but I was wondering, how can we utilize care um, in a more kind of uh, less superficial way? Uh, I was thinking about clapping for uh, NHS workers, but not then participating in protests mm -hmm. or supporting them when they were striking for, mm -hmm. for better pay. How can we then uh, go, yeah, especially if, uh, if we want to counter that uh, oppression politics, identity politics, you know, oppression uh, Olympics, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to go to achieve a, a more sustainable mm -hmm. form of mm -hmm. solidarity, mm -hmm. what, how would that kind of care look like? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, two things. I just wanted to make a point about disability struggles and back in the day and in, on spare rib on which I was working at the time, we carried a number of stories, particularly by a woman called Mary Cross, who made the point that improvements for people with disabilities impacted positively on everyone's life. Mm -hmm. And if you had seating or easy access, that was something which made everyone's life better. And mm. you can sort of reach that across a whole range of subjects. The other thing I just wanted to say, Lynn, is that there have been a number of discussions around socialist feminism and the way in which care was, was part of that from the very beginning. I am a socialist feminist still, but I really would like to say that radical feminists also were concerned with collective action and concerned with issues of collective 
building of things. And there were differences, and there are important differences, because of the way perhaps we looked at the world, but that they, it wasn't just socialist feminists and individual achieving feminists. And I've dropped my hearing aid as I shook my head around. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, just very briefly, I think um, this isn't to disagree with anything you said, Lynn, but I think there are counter discourses which we might want to keep in mind. And I'm thinking in particular of the whole notion of an epidemic of loneliness, um, which um, a few years ago replaced um, all discussions of depression um, throughout the the whole of media. I mean, it was just a huge thing. We even had a, a minister. Um, you know, assign a minister of loneliness to kind of do. And I think there are these waves of sort of um, recognition. Nothing significant is done, but I think there are counter discourses in our society. And I mean, loneliness has stood in for many, many things. I mean, for all sorts of forms of deprivation. So I'd just be curious to know what you have to say about that. I can remember where we began. Using care, um, less superficially clapping for carers. Yes, well, that came to a sudden end, didn't it? <laughs> as soon as nurses wanted more pay and better conditions, then uh, <laughs> we didn't keep clapping for them then. Um, um, so, um, you know, people can only care adequately with the right community resources and the right support and, um, you know, with a sense of being embedded in, in society. You know, the whole, when we wrote our care manifesto, as in this book, the, the whole point we were making was the ties between everything. You know, you can't just have care in the home or even just in the community. You know, we have to have it within a... Um, uh, a caring world, you know, within a green world, within a world with a, that has continuity. So um, there just seems there's um, so much to say if you're really to prioritise care, which is why my book uh, begins <laughs> talking about the family but ends talking about the world and um, whether the world has a future or not, yeah. So it certainly ended very abruptly, didn't it? That clapping for carers <laughs> as soon as uh, as soon as care workers uh, wanted decent uh, lives for themselves, and indeed to be able to have the conditions in which they could care adequately, which, as we know, they do not have um, in the hospitals or or anywhere else. That the second point, if I understood it correctly, was that radical feminism also had things to say about care, and it wasn't just that there was socialist feminism and individual get ahead. Okay, I didn't attack radical feminists, did I? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I do. <laughs> You're definitely right. <laughs> and um, the epidemic of loneliness is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think it's often understood fairly individually, actually. Um, I mean, like, where is lonely? Who is lonely and most lonely and why? You know, elderly people living alone get, who see nobody day in and day out. And, um, um, Except it was young people who were particularly identified. Well, they would be, though, wouldn't they? Because they've got more of a voice. 
but I found that the studies were, mm, the major mm. studies were terrible loneliness among the young. Yes, no, I'm sure there is. No, I'm not. Um, was the idea something like there's this, so people will talk about loneliness or depression and there's a kind of response, but it's an inadequate response and then it's replaced by some other kind of discourse. And I, think it, I think it just scooped up. Yes. Um, so many forms of despair and misery yes. and deprivation and it labeled them loneliness and then it did that yes. and generated huge amounts of study and huge yes. amounts of it tends to be individualized, doesn't it? Well, uh, it's an intrinsically social concept. Yes. Lonely, I mean, without, you know, the, the lack of something. I mean, it, so it's, a, it's about social relationships. Well, and the collapse of communities and the collapse of uh, engaged politics. Well, and sometimes the failure was attributed to individual, but other times it became a critique, a social critique, but mm. then just was completely... Mm -hmm. It was a substitute mm -hmm. for serious mm -hmm. social analysis. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. I mean, what I find is that there's, there is still a fallout from COVID where people did get engaged in more community activity. And I do see a little more, Lola, you may know I go along to um, our uh, local church actually not for anything religious but because they have um uh, free food or anyone can pay whatever they like in uh, the second chance cafe that we have in hackney and i think there are still more things like that developing on a small scale that are a continuation of that time when we Actually, we're not all working overtime, and some of us could get more engaged in active, caring work for each other, which usually it's only the retired who have time to work in the food banks or try and do other things for each other because everybody is engaged in overwork. So, you know, the world we want has to be a world far shorter working hours, all those things that, you know, Trade unions have fought for, as well as feminists and others have fought for, to um, simply almost turn upside down, you know, the neoliberal world that we're still living in to create a world where we can prioritise caring for each other, caring for ourselves and caring for each other. And that's where I try and end up in the book. <laughs> I guess that's that's it for time. Do you have any final final thoughts before we round off? <laughs> We've got a lot of ground already. <laughs> lean on me. Lean on me is of course lean on each other. <laughs> lean together. <laughs> lean <laughs> lean progressively. Um, that's what we all need to be doing and um, trying to spend more time together enjoying ourselves, which perhaps we can do now if we share a glass. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.